Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 21st, 2023. As always, the news from the Middle East and from Israel in particular is rather bleak. Headlines today are the uproar over the Israeli government's decision to overhaul its judiciary. Um, New York Times, which tends to be relatively balanced or about as balanced, I think, as you can get on Israel, uh, report on this as uh, protests, according to the Times, not for the first or the last time, rock Jerusalem. Uh, many people in the United States are very uncomfortable with this new policy. Um, and the United States now is backing a, a statement critical of the United uh, of, of Israel at the United Nations, which is relatively unusual. Uh, things are getting really dodgy, as they've always been in Israel, but perhaps even dodgier. One of my oldest friends uh, in the area... Uh, literally and figuratively, um, Yossi Vardi has been on this show many times uh, talking about green energy and labor. I saw him in uh, Munich um, in January last month, and he said to me, he was joking, but only as Yossi can do, he said, uh, every uh, 2,000 years, the Jews get a chance to create their own state, and it lasts about 70 years. He, uh, influential Zionist, one of the founding figures in the country, certainly on the tech front, is increasingly pessimistic, bleak about the country's future. Uh, rather than thinking about Israel's future, though, we're thinking today about its past or its past uh, before it was even a state. Uh, my guest today, Jonathan Wilson, has a new book out, The Red Balcony, uh, which is a novel about uh, the 1930s uh, in what was then known as Palestine, uh, which was part of the old British Empire. Jonathan is joining us from Newton in Massachusetts. He's taught for many years at Tufts University. Uh, Jonathan, writing uh, a novel about Israel, of course, is probably just as tricky as writing a nonfiction book. This is not your first novel uh, on Israel. You wrote also a Palestinian affair that got shortlisted for some prizes. Um, it's a book with a great deal of moral complexity. Um, did you purposely choose to write about the 1930s in order to think or rethink Israel's history? Yeah, I mean, not only Israel's history, uh, but also Israel's present. And uh, uh, it's the third stab I've had at writing a novel about the British mandate. And um, my sense is that I was intrigued by a place when things were still fluid. Uh, nothing had been fixed in stone. Um, but the, the roots of the conflict and the roots of the schism that we see today within Israeli society were already present in British Mandate Palestine. Um, and uh, yeah, I wanted to take that on. And I also wanted to look at each of my novels. And this, this one is, deals with a very famous or infamous murder, the murder of Chaim al in 1933. 
deals with a murder that may or may not have been a political assassination. And one of the triggers for that, for me thinking about that was, of course, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And if you remember that afterwards, a lot of people were talking about how unusual it was, how Jews simply didn't politically assassinate other Jews. And I thought, well, no, actually, this isn't true. Uh, they've done it in the 1920s with Jacob Dehan and and most probably, most likely, although it isn't 100% clear, with Chaim Lozarov in 1933. So I think you not only get a window onto the past, but you get a window onto the root causes of the schism, that the chasm that exists now between the left and the right in Israel and how, and how that got uh, set in place. And I think it did get set in place by the Al-Azarov murder, and I don't think it's ever come together since then. And the chasm, of course, you're talking about now is manifesting itself in this current controversy over judicial overhaul. So um, not everyone, of course, Jonathan, will be as intimate, as familiar as you with the history of Palestine, or certainly the Jews in Palestine in the 1930s. Remind us, paint the picture uh, which is the setting for your for your new novel, The Red Balcony? Well, um, the, let me start with an image. The one, the image that I that really I began with when I started working of the novel was a photograph that I'd seen of the Hotel Fast in Jerusalem in 1933, with a swastika flying from its flagpole. Um, Hitler had recently come to power in Germany. The swastika had become one of the two official flags of Germany. Um, Britain was not at war with Germany. The Hotel Fast was a place that catered to German tourists a lot who were coming to visit the Holy Land. And so they strung up a swastika that, that whipped in the wind over Jerusalem in 1933. And I thought this is like a, an extraordinary image, um, one I don't think most people could could imagine. Um, and it led me uh, to begin to think about um, the 1930s, in particular this moment, this historical moment in, in the history of uh, the Yeshuv, the Jewish state in waiting in Palestine. Um, and uh, what you have here is uh, a very sort of mixed bag of characters. You've got a place that's really a sort of small outpost of the British Empire, like India, but in miniature. Uh, you have uh, British Mandate Authority running the show. You have a British judicial system in which uh, uh, British judges are allowed to wear wigs and the Jewish and Arab judges are not. Uh, you, have a, uh, you have Jews who are Zionists, Jews who are anti-Zionist, Brits who are pro-Zionist Brits who are anti-Zionist uh, Jews who believe in a kind of, uh, who aren't interested in having a Jewish state at all, like Gershom Sholem, the great Kabbalist, Kabbalah scholar who want a kind of cultural renaissance and have no designs on land in particular. Uh, you have uh, the revisionist Jews, the followers of Jabotinsky, who are already dreaming of a greater Israel. You have Jews on the left, uh, uh, like Ben-Gurion's ben Labour Zionist movement, and of which our Lazarov was a part, who are open to some kind of compromise. So it's a real 
uh, extraordinary mess of contradictions and competing narratives and differing views of the future of the place. And you have, of course, the, the Brits trying to uh, placate both sides. I mean, uh, uh, when Hitler gets going, uh, there's a movement to uh, which Alozarov is part of, um, part of a, uh, an agreement that he negotiated with Hitler's government that nobody really much wants to talk about, called the transfer agreement, where uh, what happened was uh, the, the Nazis said, well, you know, the Jews can't leave. Uh, but then they and they certainly can't. They can, sorry. So the Nazis said the Jews can leave, but they can't take their money with them. And the the deal that Alazarov negotiated simplified. Uh, Jonathan, you you, yeah. you you use this phrase Jewish state in waiting. I'm not exactly yeah. sure what what you meant by that. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, it's called the Yeshuv, and it's those who are moving towards the establishment of a Jewish state. But at this point in 1933, a Jewish state is still 15 years away. Yeah. And so they have a kind of shadow government already in place, you know, if they're going, if the state ever comes into being, which of course. Yeah, if the state ever comes into being. And in 1933, it's, it's not clear. Nobody could really have imagined what would take place in the next 12, 13 years. Um, right. So. Uh, going back to this complicated situation, you you use characters, fictional characters in your novel. Are you presenting, so to speak, good and bad Jews or good and bad Zionists here, in your opinion, people who understood the situation were responsible and others who weren't? Um, I don't think it's as... It's uh, I, as easy as good and bad. I think I'm trying to represent, I mean, I'm not writing a history, I'm writing a novel, and I'm trying to represent, I think, something more nuanced, uh, the pulls and tugs of history and different ideologies on different people and how it worked in the society as a whole, including the sort of, you've got a paradoxical situation. You have, uh, you know, when Hitler gets going, uh, there are Jewish groups who immediately boycott Germany and who want to, you know, and uh, and who want to get the Jews out of Germany. Uh, getting the Jews into Palestine isn't that easy. And every time there's an influx of uh, Jewish refugees in from Germany into Palestine, it uh, uh, understandably. Um, causes um, a disturbance in, in the uh, Arab population who don't want to see a lot of uh, Jewish immigration to Palestine. And um, so you have a very, very complicated situation. You also have two sides that uh, certainly, I don't know if it's good and bad, but you have a very uh, distinct distinction that can be drawn between the, the Jews on the right who thought that, for example, Al-Lazarov had negotiated a deal with the devil, uh, which was essentially that the, the Nazis agreed that Jews couldn't take their money out, but they could buy German goods and import them to Palestine uh, to support the Jewish economy of the Yeshuv. Um, and on the other hand... So, so, so um, this Yeshuv is the Jewish, what you call the Jewish state and waiting. Yeah. But isn't that very ambitious to say the least i mean the, even the idea of a jewish state was unimaginable until the end of the second world at the end of the first world war 
was enormously controversial and it certainly was un unimaginable before what happened uh, in Nazi Germany in, in the Second World War. So th this notion of what you call the Yeshuv, is, is this something that we should be critical of or something we should yeah, yeah, accept yeah. It, as what no. you call this Jewish state in waiting? No, I, no, the Yeshuv isn't my term. It's the, it's the term that's used, uh, uh, is commonplace in, in Israel to describe uh, the, the sort of, shadow state or the state mm. in waiting that uh that existed uh in the Zionist and no one knew what it was going to be i mean so there were rival ideas right. of states so perhaps right. you might lay one or two of those out in terms of your characters well um i have a yeah i mean um one of my characters is a guy called charles gross who's an oxford educated young man who's out in Palestine working for a bank, uh, Anglo-Palestine bank. And he's a follower of Jabotinsky and the revisionists, and he believes in a kind of greater Israel. And he uh, believes in sort of uh, the importance of a sort of new Jew, a kind of um, uh, who's well-trained militarily and who's ready to you know, take on the Arab world and expand the state of Israel as far as he can when it comes into being. Um, on the on the other side, for example, I have my main character is a young man called Ivor Castle, who's uh, also an Oxford grad who knew uh, Charles Gross at Oxford. And he's a political naive who doesn't really have a position one way or another and who is caught in his identity between who's experienced some measure of anti-Semitism in England, but not enough to prevent him from going to Oxford and having quite a nice life in St. John's Wood, a quite well-to-do neighborhood of London. He's the son of a famous barrister. And then he arrives in Palestine. He feels he should have some affinity with the Jews who are there, who are Zionists, but he doesn't really. He's, uh, he's a sort of mess of naivety, political naivety and confusion. Is there an oh, element of uh, autobiography there, Jonathan? You're a well-educated uh, English Jew. Do you think you would might have turned out like him had you been there in the 1930s? Well, um, I did live in Israel for four years from 1977 to 1981. And I, while I was teaching at Hebrew University, I hoped that I wasn't as uh, ever as uh, naive uh, as Ivor is, although I have some sympathy for him. Um, he's caught between two worlds and doesn't really feel completely at home in either of them. And yeah, I guess I felt that to a certain degree. I certainly felt when I was in England that the, my Jewishness was something that was always foregrounded about me and that it was something that when it arose, often arose in a, in a grotesque form, I felt. Are, uh, you a, are you a critic of the state of Israel? Are you sympathetic? How would you describe yourself? Well, I'm certainly a critic of the current government and what it's trying to do. Um, I think that... Uh, um, you know, I think I certainly, I don't know what you mean by a critic of the state of Israel. I believe in, uh, certainly believe in the importance of the existence of the state of Israel, but how the state of Israel is governed. Well, let, let me reverse the question. Have they not, I don't know, had Hitler been assassinated in 1935, mm -hmm. um, 
this what you call this Jewish state in waiting, presumably we'd still be waiting for it, and that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, would it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I as the uh, what do you mean you don't know? You've been writing, I don't know what you've spent your life know. thinking about these issues. No, no. I don't know that we'd still be waiting for it. I don't well, know if, I mean, if we the could... idea that the only uh, catalyst for the emergence of the Jewish state is the Holocaust. I don't think is necessarily written stone. So what does this book tell us, this novel about the current situation, the mm. rather than, I mean, it's it's all too easy to criticize Israel. And we've had many shows on, on this subject. Is there anything positive about this novel that can help us try to address the seemingly intractable problem of, the question of the future of Israel slash Palestine? Well, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, great historians, political scientists, political commentators have, have addressed that um, much more detail than I have. Is there anything, I mean, I don't see it as my job really in writing this novel to provide a blueprint for the future of Israel. I, I do think that um, it was, I keep thinking of that, uh, you know, that Joni Mitchell song, California, where she's talking about give peace a chance. And then she says that that was just a dream some of us had. And most of my, many, many of my Israeli friends are utterly distraught with the current situation. I don't live there. Um, I, I'm extremely upset about it for my own part as a, a member of the diaspora. Um, uh, have I given up on... I mean, when I lived in Israel, when I, uh, it, it was the, at the time of early when I lived there, was the time of the visit of Sadat, when things looked very, very hopeful, uh, not only for a more general peace, but maybe also for some kind of peace with the Palestinians. That hope seems to have gone. Um, is there anything in my novel that, that offers some kind of hope? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm trying to... Um, I'm trying to evoke a period that reminds us of how things began. And um, maybe uh, the epigraph to the novel, uh, which I'm sure you saw, you know, which says, um, to understand historical reality, it's sometimes necessary not to know the outcome. And um, I think that's more the job of the novelist to present the problems, to present, in my case, trying to, uh, to show you a world, show you the world that the current situation uh, almost 100 years later grew out of. And maybe that offers some greater insight into... Um, Do you think there's a direct line? between Jabotinsky and the Irgun, the Jewish terrorist group, Egin, and then, of course, Netanyahu? Yes. Or is, is that oversimplistic? No, I don't think that's oversimplistic. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a line that uh, the, the Likud would have a problem with. Um, uh, and uh, absolutely. I mean, what's one of the fascinating things about the murder of Arlozorov is that it split the left and the right? That the that the the left, uh, 
the left were utterly convinced that it was right-wing Jews who had murdered our Lazarov. The right-wing uh, Jews, the revisionists, were utterly convinced that it was uh, a young Arab man who had murdered our Lazarov. Um, and that to say otherwise was a calumny. And Begin, when he was prime minister, remember this is a, I'm writing about a murder that has been unsolved for 90 years, a, a classic cold case. And that Begin, uh, when he was prime minister, was so enraged by the constant on the left that the murders of, murderers of Arlozorov came from his own party, um, uh, had a um, commission look, look into the murder. And this is a murder that, that uh, as somebody um, who was writing about my novel said was a, a, a significant, in a way, in, in, in early... Palestinian Israeli society as the Dreyfus case was in France. And, mm. and, they... and it speaks to the, the violent roots, the terrorist roots, ironically enough, of the Jewish state. Um, Jonathan, yeah. you've got these two fictional characters, Oxford-educated Jews, English Jews. Hitler, of yeah. course, never showed up in London. So right. maybe there's some, as you've suggested, rather mild anti-Semitism in England, but there's no reason for English no. to go to Israel or think of Israel as a, a state um, for, for the Jews. Uh, could this be, I mean, is there any difference between two Oxford-educated Jews, Israel or Egypt or Africa? Isn't there kind of colonial quality to it? And, uh, where are the Arabs in your book? Absolutely. Are they there? And uh, I, I think when uh, there are certainly Arab characters in my book, and I think that when you, uh, but they're not, the focus is not, is not on uh, the Arab characters in this particular novel. The focus, as you say, is on the, primarily on this English Jewish character, Ivor Castle. But let me take issue a little bit. I don't think the anti-Semitism in England was mild. Um, I think that the anti-Semitism in England is complicated because it certainly wasn't a kind of anti-Semitism that prevented Jews and certainly Jews like Ivor Castle from pursuing their education, from reaching highest levels of British society. But I do think it was insidious and ever-present and certainly during World War II. There was, before World War II, there was Mosley, as you're very well aware, and, uh, and I think there's been a persistent um, uh, sort of um, uh, seam of anti-Semitism in British life at all levels of society for a very long time. Um, there's also, it's also uh, a very tolerant society in other ways. I mean, my father who worked for the United Synagogues of Great Britain all his life, um, and was an observant Jew, thought England was a wonderfully tolerant and uh, open society, and he loved living there. But you're quite right that uh, for, uh, certainly in the 1930s, for most British Jews, they had no interest whatsoever, very little interest in, in Palestine and in, the, and in the emergent, potentially emergent Jewish state. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're right about that. Um, and Ivor Castle is emblematic of that, of that kind of indifference. He's really gone out to Palestine more or less to have an adventure, as exactly as you say, as he might have a British colonial adventure in a way, as might have been the same for him in India. Or do you, do you think, uh, sort of, in, in a way that 
Now, lots of critics of Israel see it essentially as a colonial state, as a European, as 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 an as the next chapter in European colonization of the non-European world. Is there something of that in 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 your critique and in the no, I th- in I making think, sense of the 1930s of what no, happened? No, I think I, but no, I think that I'm. I think what I'm interested more in in, in this book is the failure that people looking at the history of the area have in uh, emphasizing the impact of the the European colonial powers, uh, say France in Lebanon, Britain in Palestine, and how they divvied up the place and how they were, uh, you know, we don't, I, I don't think we look enough at the uh, the colonial roots of the problem uh, as they were exacerbated by sort of British and French colonialism in, let's say, in Lebanon and Palestine and, and, in, and in Egypt. You've written a number of books. Um, I think, uh, how many books? Eight previous books. And there's a strong focus on your Jewish identity. You've written a book about the great Russian Jewish artist, Mark Chagall. You wrote a book an autobiography, a memoir about your love affair with uh, soccer, with English football, memoir with a soccer ball that really focuses on your Jewish identity. Uh, As I said, you've written a number of novels. uh, What is it about being Jewish that drives your, your, your writing career? Why is it so interesting? Uh... Why is it so interesting to me? Being yeah. Um, well, you seem particularly preoccupied. I mean, everyone's yeah, I, am. I guess yeah. in a way with their own yeah. identities. But yes, I, for a man, there's, there's, there's no doubt that I am. But uh, you know, it would take me take me quite a long time. I mean, I think if you read the the books, you get a sense of the roots of my own preoccupations. And I think it, it's because I've experienced a, a, a serial variety of Jewish lives. I, as I told you, I, I grew up in an Orthodox observant Jewish home in London. Um, I spent some years in Israel. Um, I first came to New York City in 1976. Actually, I arrived on the night before the bicentennial. And my experience of New York was extraordinary because I felt I'd never really seen Jewish people enjoying themselves before. I'd never seen such a happy bunch. And uh, it was a a sort of revelation to be living in, uh, first of all, in what felt like something like a majority after a life among uh, self-effacing so I don't know, maybe you have a similar experience, maybe the self-effacing world of British Jewry. Um, but in, and I experienced a kind of uh, um, sort of uh, different sense of myself in each place that I was in. Uh, when I moved from England to New York, uh, I felt okay, you're Jewish, so what does it matter? Big deal, so is everybody else. Um, and I was, tr- But I was treated very much as an English person because of my accent, because of where I was at university, at Oxford, and so on. 
Um, when I went to Israel, I had a similar kind of sort of uh, double sense of my identity again of, uh, you know, having felt very Jewish in England, I began to feel quite English in Israel. Actually, you're the second kid, come to think of it, you're the second English Jew to have gone to Oxford and been preoccupied with your identity to appear on this show in the last like three days. Do you know Roger Cohen, the New York Times columnist? I know his work. Yeah, I know his writing. Sure. So he was on and he hasn't dedicated his whole literary output to his Jewish identity, but it drove him. He said that it drove he grew up as a South African Jew in London and it drove him out and drove him to France. So clearly it does have an impact. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I, I, you know, I, I don't write exclusively about my Jewish identity, but yeah, pretty, I, I, I mean, Jonathan, it's, it's. But I admit, yeah, I no, I'm not ashamed. I don't I'm not mean a, critical. I mean, anyone yeah, can write about anything they want. I don't care. Yeah, I'm not ashamed. I'm just I'm curious. Ashamed. I'm not ashamed of it. No. Are you no, ashamed? I mean, or not? I mean, look, it's a, it's an extraordinarily rich history. It's an extraordinary, not mine, but it's an extraordinarily rich cultural, religious. Uh, political, historical history. I mean, it's an extraordinary well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have uh, sort of in my fiction. Yeah, I, in, yeah. I mean, is it is it any different from Philip Roth's? I, I don't know. I mean, it's different. In, it's certainly completely different in the, what I write about. But I, I, I don't think anybody finds it odd anymore that people write fiction that um, tends to uh, concentrate on on aspects of their own identity, quite the reverse. Things have changed, though, Jonathan, in England, haven't they? I mean, when you were growing up, as you said, British Jews, as you suggest, at least, were all miserable. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't say British were miserable. Well, they, they were maybe a bit ashamed or shy of their identity, whereas in America they wore it on their badge. Now in England, everyone's into... Yeah. Jewish identity, even non-Jews. Uh, I know you're a, a fan of uh, uh, North yeah. London Football Club. You wrote about it in your book, um, Kick and yeah. Run. Yeah. Uh, this this idea of whether or not people should embrace the idea, the Y word. What's you know the right. Y word and the N word seem to be very controversial these days. What's your feeling on the the Y word and the use of the Yid Army phrase in English football? Yeah. Yeah, I am a diehard supporter of Tottenham Hotspur. That's absolutely true. And um, I, I... They're not very good, Jonathan, are they? They haven't won anything for, what, 100 years? What are you talking about? Outrageous statement. Uh, <laughs> they've won, they haven't won the Premier League since 1961. So, so, so When were you born? Only, that's, <laughs> since I was 11. So, you know, that's, that's only like 62 years. That's not so long. Yeah, it's a short um, um, and they won Nothing. the FA Cup a few times, and they were in the Champions League final just a few years ago, when they unfortunately gave up a goal in the first minute. But um, it's a very um, uh, interesting issue. David Badil has written uh, Chelsea a fan, yes, yeah. But he grew up uh, around the corner to where I grew up in Dollis Hill in Northwest London, um, and. Uh, and David Cameron, if you remember, got in on the act when uh, he suggested that actually he didn't think it was such a bad thing for Spurs fans to uh, chant, uh, you know, what you're calling the Y word. 
Um, and um, uh, I have to say that um, there is there is a kind of irony in that I think the Tottenham fans who are members of the Yid army and describing themselves as members of it very happily would probably be, if they were fans of other clubs, would probably be yelling the same word in abuse at Tottenham fans rather than celebrating it. Um, and I remember the first time I heard it, I was going to a game with my nephew and... Uh, and it that felt... was a final in uh, in Wales. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And uh, I heard it for the first time, and uh, it felt a little Nuremberg to me. And he, my nephew, said, "Don't worry, you know, it's us. It's just supporting us. It's okay." Um, I, I haven't found that it particularly bothers me. I find it quite amusing that it gets bleeped out on US TV when you're watching a soccer game. You can hear something, but you can't actually hear what the Tottenham fans are chanting. Um, but I'm in too deep with Tottenham, and probably, uh, and, and probably, um, you know, uh, much too deeply involved for deeper than with Israel. <laughs> uh, much deeper. Maybe equal, maybe equally deep. <laughs> any chance of getting a novel out of you about the Palestinian people, the non-Jews? Well, look, I, I, uh, a, a Palestine affair in, in uh, both of my novels, and this is on, on a very serious note, in, in both of my novels are historically accurate representations of uh, particular cases. And in both cases, uh, they're novels in which uh, a young uh, Arab boy or man is accused of a crime that they didn't commit that was actually committed by Jews. Um, and uh, particularly with... The, yeah, and they didn't go to Oxford, did they? They didn't go to Oxford. And particularly in, uh, you know, the Dahan case in, in 1924, the, uh, the actual murderers of Dahan for political reasons, went on Israeli radio in the 1970s and fessed up and said, no, we did it and we shouldn't have done it and we shouldn't have tried to lay it on the Arabs. I think that the difficulty in nowadays, certainly in writing about um, uh, focusing the novel on the, on the Palestinian Arab population in, in Israel um, is that it's it's a it's a tightrope because one can uh, you don't want to feel that you're appropriating lives that you're not intimately uh, engaged with and uh, I've experienced that I think it's a kind of uh, situation that you have to be very well aware of as a novelist that you uh, to kind of overly use phrase you have to write more about what you know. And uh, I think well, it's often... you could probably learn a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've certainly learned a lot. And mm. uh, well, I, I would love to to have a no. I think you know Jewish writers, uh, Anglo Jewish writers, think, uh, you need to write about Palestinians, and maybe Palestinian novelists need to write about the Jews. Finally, well, Jonathan, do. as a as a big uh, Tottenham fan, how could you write a book called The Red Balcony? <laughs> You're the second person <laughs> who's mentioned that to me. I know it should be called the Lily White Balcony. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a terrible mistake. Yeah.